you are not listening to the BBC. It is not seven o'clock on Sunday. to bring you more adventures from his magic radio.
sit back and prepare to be thrilled as we go on a wonderful trip together. <laughs> Have you been playing nicely since the last time we met? I hope that you have. Now that the evenings are a little lighter, I, I suspect that you've been out in the woods or down by the river, building rafts and climbing trees like I used to. <laughs> that was long before health and safety, of course. I haven't got time for all that. <laughs> What's the point in not doing something just because it's a little bit dangerous? Hmm? I do dangerous things every day, and I've learned how to avoid trouble, which I think is a very important life skill. Do you know what I do that's very dangerous? Well, I travel through time, skipping and dancing back and forth as it pleases me. Impossible, you say. Well, let me explain just how that's very possible. Now then, if you're a regular listener to my program, you will know all about it. But if you are here for the first time, then there's a few things that you should know about me before we go any farther. You see, a very long time ago, I was unbelievably famous on the wireless. You do know what a wireless is, is don't you? It's that's right, it's, it's, it's just like the thing that you're listening to me on right now. But, but of course, back in the very olden days, they were the center of every home. There was no internet or mobile phones back then, and certainly no television. All we had for entertainment was each other. Perhaps a piano, if we were lucky, or a radio set. Back then, of course, they weren't little things that you could put in your pocket. Oh no, they were great big wooden things with glowing bulbs inside them, and they'd be placed on the sideboard, all hot and buzzing. And when they were switched on, the whole family would gather around and be transported away into a little world of music, drama, news, and comedy. It was a wonderful time, yes. But what about time traveling, Uncle Reggie? I hear you say. Well, let me explain. I've been building and repairing old radios since the very day that they were first invented. And this led me on to make a very special device which allows me not only to tune into the past, but thanks to a small piece of secret meteorite which I found in the 1930s allows me to pass through a tear in the space-time fabric, and off I go, like slipping through the curtains, whooshing and whizzing to any place that I choose, more or less. But the best bet is that I can do all of this as I sit here in my very comfortable, old, embarrassingly squeaky leather armchair. Yes, that's lovely. And, and so can you. You can come too if you like. Would you enjoy that? Jolly hockey sticks, how wonderful. <laughs> yes, I, I expect that that's the reason that you're here, isn't it? Hmm, 
belt, in a moment or two, I shall fire up the engines of my old magic radio and see where we can go and what we can hear. But first, whilst I prepare everything, I'd like to play you one of my old 78 RPM records. I have a huge collection of old recordings, don't you know? If you're a regular listener, you will know that I always like to bring you some forgotten music. Songs and tunes from singers who used to be superstar celebrities in their day, but through the cruel ravages of time have become forgotten. Yes, which is such a shame as when they were famous they enjoyed tremendous success. This, this next record is by one such chap, but first I'll give you a little background as to the how and wherefore of this particular song, you see. The early history of radio is peppered with terms and ideas that have long fallen into obscurity, but it is safe to say that, uh, in, in general, that the first broadcasts were very much tied into the emerging telephone systems, but because the radio didn't need to be connected by any wires, it became known as wireless telegraphy, which is a little confusing as people often saw the two types of media as being almost inseparable. It was the genius Nikola Tesla that first demonstrated the concept of radio back in 1892. Oh, would you believe, but just two years later, an Italian fascist named Guglielmo Marconi built a device which proved beyond all doubt that a new thing had arrived, but still people called it, and the telephone network, the wireless, right up until the early 1920s, and are you with me so far? Yeah. I digress, but it, it's important to the context of this next song, you see, which was sung by a Jewish immigrant in America 90 years ago. Can you imagine that? In 1922, Irving Kaufman and an orchestra went into a studio to record this delightful little song, which is dedicated to all you children out there who have lost their mummies. Yes, very sad. And I'll tell you a little more about him, the singer, after we've heard I Wish There Was a Wireless to Heaven by Irving Kaufman. This is an old 70R, 78, RPM, whatever they're called, record from my personal huge connection.
that a cheerful little thought, and I hope that all you little ones who have lost your mummies derive some comfort from the sentiments expressed by the strident singing contained in that last song. I wish there was a wireless to heaven, then my mummy wouldn't seem so far away. You know, I have often felt that recordings from long, long ago are like listening to ghosts. Don't you think so? I mean, these are, these are the voices of dead people. Utterly fascinating. Now, let, let me see what I can remember. Irving Kaufman was a very prolific recording artist in the 20s and 30s, did you know? And he even performed with such jazz superstars as Big Beidebeck of the Dorsey Brothers. Although he was never really considered a jazz singer. No, he was firmly rooted in the style of vaudeville, which was America's equivalent of the British Music Hall, which is, uh, like, uh, well, one day, couldn't Prince got talent, I suppose. It was a hodgepodge collection of various artists with a, a random selection of individual skills and abilities which they performed on stage every night of the week, up and down the country, in theatres in every town. This was before television, of course, and uh, uh, back then, everyone went to the music hall as there was nothing much else to do. Yes, uh, one of the most interesting things about Kaufman was that he often performed under a variety of pseudonyms in his career, including my favorite, George Beaver. You might think that that, that, last, that last song was, was a bit rubbish, but make no mistake, Irving was a huge star in the 1920s, and he was among the many who pioneered not only modern popular music, but was also one of the elite who was there at the birth of recording and the new medium of radio which brought entertainment to the masses. Which is a bit like me, really. I brought entertainment to the masses, and I'm proud to say that I've been doing so since the early 1930s. When I was a very young man, I worked for the BBC as a journalist, and would often travel up and down the country making programs about local folk, and interviewing whoever I could. Initially, I had a series called My Gypsy Life, and later, a rural program called The Country Matters. And it was whilst working on one of these shows that my producer assigned me to investigate the mysterious disappearance of a young girl called Alice Langhorn and the death of many sheep in a village deep in the Yorkshire Dales called Micklehampton. Oh, but I didn't know that this was just the beginning of a very complicated chain of events, and indeed the inspiration for a very famous film which was made many years later. Now, at this point, I have to explain a few things, you see. Firstly, I am not what I might seem to be. No. Through an unfortunate miscalculation on my part, I am today what seems to be a shadow of my former self. This is because back then, when I was a keen young broadcaster, I was also a very, very eager radio builder, and I constructed my very own transmitter and receiver out of a variety of household electrical objects. 
I was also fascinated by science and the possibility of the human mind being able to harness the natural elements, you see. All of this led me to developing my secret invention, the temporal solenoid inducer. A small vacuum sealed valve, which when inserted into my radio, gave it the power to transport a listener through a gateway in the space-time continuum. Now then, all this happened in the 1930s, but you see, because of what I've done, I'm not really sure which point of time is actually now, as you might understand it. As you following me? Yes? I hope so. Well, back to our story. And I must say this is going to take some explaining, so if you don't mind, I'm just going to lighten the pipe, as this might take a little bit of concentration. <laughs> you see, as it's made, and the countryside is full of ancient rituals. I thought it might be a good time to recall this particular story. At this time of year, of course, the simple country folk begin to dance around maypoles and sing Summer is a coming in and other such terrifying songs. But to continue our story, let me fire up the magic radio and let myself, well, as I was then, take up the tale. Is this the only way we're going to make head nor tail of what was going on back then? And hopefully it might allow me to, shall we say, rescue myself from a fate worse than death. Dangerous health and safety hazard, if ever there was one. I'll just switch it on like that. Ooh, there we go. Phew, bit dusty this week. Temporal solenoid inducer. Switch on here, just adjust it a bit more. And uh, there we go, adjust this bit here. And we should be able to turn the dial back to June 1936. There we go, that's it. Let's go through the wicker pig-shaped speaker. Oh, you weren't expecting that, were you? Some luncheon vouchers, a map, and a train ticket. 
There was little to alert my suspicions, and at first glance appeared to be the perfect break for me. I had been working very hard, and a few days in the country seemed like an idyllic idea. There wasn't any time to lose as my train was leaving that day, so it wasn't long before I was at the station, looking for the train that would carry me to that small Dale's village. compartment in the carriage and sat myself down, arranged my case under my seat, and pulled out a few papers to read and familiarize myself with the case before I arrived. After a while I was joined by a small gentleman wearing tweeds and a flat cap with a piglet under each arm. Luckily, I had my home-built field recorder with me to capture the unfolding event. Excuse me, is the seat taken? No, please, help yourself. Excuse me, I do hope that you don't mind me asking, but you're a Yorkshireman, aren't you? Aye, why do you ask? Well, I I have some business in the area, and uh, I'm just here for a few days. Oh, no, I, uh, what do you do? Well, I work on the radio. No, fancy. Uh, so what about you? What brings you here today? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's Skipton Market tomorrow, and uh, I'm going to meet a few farmers, and uh, if I can sell these little fellows. Uh, how about yourself? Well, I'm going to Micklehampton to do a story about the village and to talk to some of the local people. Micklehampton, eh? Yes. Why? Uh, rather you than me. Oh, why do you say that? Uh, well, let's just say that folks around here are uh, uh, less than friendly, and that there's some funny goings on, and that they don't particularly do like off Cumberland's best thing on. It's just not a double with stuff that I don't understand. Well, would you mind keeping your pigs on the contrary, please? The pigs? Get here. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Do you recognize this girl? Uh, no, I can't say I've ever seen her. This is Alice Langhorn. Oh, I see. Uh, why exactly are you off to Micklehampton, Mr. Merriweather? Well, I'm doing a story about the farmers. Well, what's you got a photograph of that little girl for, then? Oh, she's somebody that they've asked me to be on the lookout for. They? Yes, the people at the BBC. That's my work for. I mean, radio. I'm quite famous, you know. Uh, well, as I say, I've never seen her. Uh, and if you'll excuse me now, this is, this is my stop. You mind how you're going. Don't turn your back on anything. Well, there you have it. My first encounter with the local people. And as you can see, there are strong feelings about this sleepy village, which does nothing but fire my imagination further. As we roll along, I can't help but be hypnotized by the gentle rocking of the train and the beautiful rolling countryside at my window. I wasn't convinced by his account, but I was too tired to press my questions any further and decided to listen to my radio to relax. Wake up, Wake up. What on earth? That, that sounds like me. That's bizarre. I'm attempting to alert you to the fact that you are in great danger. Danger? How is this possible? Who, who is this that's speaking to me? It's, uh, it's, it's someone who is very concerned for your well-being. Is this on the radio? I've never heard this program before. 
home, I did. God, I can't do this. This is happening. I saw all that I went to to overcome this situation, but here I am again, as if it was all happening from the first time. You, you must forgive me, listeners, but this is a terrible situation, and, and one that I must explain this is you so that you can understand why I'm so upset. Timothy Brewster did indeed write me a great deal in the 1950s and was most persistent in trying to meet me, but I resisted. I have never, never met any of my fans and would never do so. It has been a golden rule of mine since the beginning. I wanted no contact whatsoever with the children that listened to my show. I was brought up a good Methodist boy, and, and more than that, I, I upheld professional standards. I was a performer, a figurehead, not some grubby celebrity to be exploited. I think that the unfolding events of the past six months have proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was right in my principles. But I didn't expect this. Not after all this time. Not after what has happened. I can't explain any more right now. I'm terribly sorry. I need some time to think this over and decide what is the best thing to do next. So, on that bombshell, this is indeed the end of the letters. This is the I think I need some music to cheer me up. Here, let me see what I can find on the radio. Uh, here we go. This will do. And I think I can simply dedicate this to Zoe, who has been in Mexico. Oh, but please do excuse the sentiments expressed in the middle of this song. I know it's not particularly PC these days, but back then they didn't know what they were saying. They were innocent times. Poor ignorant fools. Off we go then through the bucket and spade shaped speaker. And now from the Freemasons Hall of Fan and on Sea, we bring you Fan Brown and the Emperor's Orchestra with a jolly ditty to get your feet tapping. Thank you. 
excited. All the little girls delighted. What a lot of fun for everyone sitting in the sun all day. Oh, was that when your radio went down for a couple of weeks? Aye. Oh, 
Well, what's that all about? It's your attack self, and, and why you never touched down on the moon itself? Well, uh, as I say, things didn't go to plan, and... Uh, Trev managed to patch the hole up with some gaffer tape, though, didn't you, Trev? Oh, well, that's it, aye. There, there were um, um, asteroids that collided with the bodywork and uh, put us off course a bit, and I uh, had to make a decision to come home instead. Uh, apart from that, nothing happened, really, did it, Jeff? No, mate. <clears throat> apart from this uh, recording that we made... Well, you made a recording? Play it in. Go on. We might as well get it out in the open. It's running. <coughs> Greetings, people of your year. This is Scout Leader Nancy Boyce, the EIO Starship in Attitude, saying, Hello, we come in peace. Is that all right? Aye, ground. Oh, that's astonishing. And indeed something that the scientists and the government will be wanting to quiz you about for many years oh, to come, no doubt. Yeah. There's a few things about the Americans that we'd all be well advised to keep an eye on. Oh? What do you mean? Well, I can say this. Space is a big place. A very big place. But on the whole, I can confidently say that for now, it's in safe British hands. But we'd better not let our guards down. Think on. Keep watching them skies. <laughs> well, there you have it. Some rather chilling words from the brave airmen of the RAF and the Queen's own deep space exploration mission. Standing outside the starship Wharf Adventurer, here is Harrogate. Exactly what he meant by that, I'm not certain, but uh, I do know that this triumphant day heralds just the start of Britain's presence in space and the beginning of our proud tradition of venturing into brave new territories, planting a flag and calling it our own. Who knows what wonderful things lie in wait for the Empire. By the turn of the century, we could be leading the world in industry and manufacturing. By 2012, maybe at the very forefront of commercial success and innovation. Who knows? God bless the Queen. And now, back to you in the studio, Ernest. Well, there you are. Absolutely fascinating. And I shall be telling you more about that in my next newsletter. Well, good heavens above preservers, and keep the jellies from us. Would you look at the clock? It's nearly time for you to wobble up the wooden hill once again, which means that it's that part of the program where I read you a story from my big old storybook. Yes, would you like that? Oh, good. I've been writing stories in my journals for as long as I can remember, and I like to call them my fireside fantasies. Let, us, let, us, let me see if I can find you something here to fall asleep to. Ah, here we go. This one is called The Headless Chicken. <clears throat> Beware! The one-legged space chickens are plotting our demise. Even as I write in the confines of my self-made prison, I know that they are out there, building their empire and patiently waiting for the day that they will inherit the Earth. It all happened very slowly at first, and no one took much notice except me. I could see what they were doing years ago, but nobody paid any attention to my warnings. Their strategy was stealth, you see. Each small advance by degrees was calculated to increase the collective effort. It first began when NASA sent the chickens into space in the 1960s. 
They wanted to see if they could survive the inhospitable conditions outside of our atmosphere. But what they didn't anticipate was the creature's resilience. After many years of existing on heavily processed food and the effects of zero gravity, the chickens have genetically modified themselves beyond all recognition. Later generations had no need to be bipeds, and slowly the race evolved to have a single leg, which they used for mobility, but also to learn the workings of the spacecraft which was now their home. In time, they also grew large and began to accumulate huge intelligence which they pass on to their young and eventually discovered other abandoned test vehicles orbiting Earth. They amalgamated these together to form an almighty and imposing coup and armed with some impressive technology began to land their now egg-shaped craft on Earth in key locations to begin the reign of covert terror. I used to listen to them on my radio night after night, sending messages to each other as they worked their way through the fabric of society. Starting with southern fried chicken at first, they systematically set about introducing their venomous toxins into our food chain. The fast food giants tried to hide it, of course. But I knew it was going on, and the gorilla chickens were happy to sacrifice their lives for the common good, knowing that their great god, Earth, would be pleased. A British poultry magnate was one of the first major figures that the chickens targeted, and his sudden demise was a direct result of a major offensive in England. But they were not content with the speed at which their grand plan was unfolding, and the chicken sheds of Norfolk continued to ring out with the sound of the radio, playing softly through the Danoi systems. Little did the farmers know what damage they were doing late at night when the broadcasts came through from the mother egg. In the next onslaught, they began to target eggs, realizing that even vegetarians eat them. They wanted to make sure that the attack was both swift and comprehensive, and so began to genetically impregnate the eggs with their evil. From time to time during the 1970s, I discovered news of the effects had leaked out, and government guidelines were swiftly enforced to halt the spread of risk, but the chickens were cunning. They turned their attention to chocolate. Easter seemed like the perfect seasonal opportunity for the elders to construct a system of operation, and they knew that they could subvert the deepest of human desires. The need to believe in folklore and the craving for tasty confectionery. As the cream-filled egg had long been a British favorite amongst consumers, they saw it as the perfect vehicle for finally taking over one of the world's superpowers. It was only a matter of time before everyone had become addicted to the syrupy virus, and in doing so, we were increasingly blind to the gradual decline in both education and health care. The figures proved this year after year, and the chickens were happy. Every night I'd listen to the speeches on the radio given by the eldest of the elders, calling the faithful to the cause, and tonight, 
is one such night as I sit in the darkness and write these words to you by the light of a single candle. The radio at my side fizzes with short red static, but in between the hissing crackle, I can hear the staccato rhythms of the great leaders, pontificating their messages of mission, and by God it's terrifying. I can barely muster the words monumental enough to describe the extent of the sheer horror it instills in the human soul. And so, for twenty years now I have lived here in the safety of this roof space above the place that used to be my home, for they will never find me here. I have created a tolerable life with my Bible for comfort, an axe for safety, and my binoculars to keep watch. Drilling hills through the roof tiles was difficult at first, and I have to remember to plug them when the rain comes, but they are sufficient for me to watch the skies through. Constantly scanning for the return of the landing eggs, the great golden crafts that they first arrived in, because they are coming. It's been foretold by the elders, it's just a matter of time, and so I wait, constantly watching. From time to time I must venture out to buy food, but by night I must hide in the sanctuary of my enclave. But what is your fate, dear reader, as you hear my sorry tale? You may scoff, but you will do so in vain and to your own inevitable peril, for you are in terrible danger as I once was. Sell your possessions, lock your doors, and prepare to retaliate, or else we are all doomed. You must take up the mantle of resistance in my stead, as I am now too weak. To save myself from further torment, I have decided to orchestrate my own termination. And when you find this letter, take it as a serious and sincere foretelling of the real danger that you live under, and let my death be a warning to you all. Well, what a jolly yarn that was. <laughs> Can you imagine the poor chap held up in the loft, trembling and creeping about? <sighs> Afraid of chickens, indeed. Lovely things they are. This is girl's law. Nom, nom, nom. So anyway, finally, I thought that I might like to finish you off with some poetry this month. Yes, <laughs> two for the price of one. How about that? I always knew that my great-grandfather on my mother's side was a writer, but I was thrilled just recently when I unearthed the following gem whilst rooting through my father's papers. And when I discover more about him, I shall write more. My great-grandfather, that is, not my father. I know who he was, obviously. I'll read you what it says here. This, this is a poem entitled, Tempest Fugit Vita Brevit. Dedicated to Bella, reference unknown, from a collection of poems called Tragedy and Tragedy by Bartholomew Brinkley, 1806-1864, essayist, romanticist, and gothic poet. All hell released this raging night brought forth from slumber nature's blight. The shrieking wind lashed 
timbers bare and thrashed the land without a care. The rain as if the sea did lash, the hedgerows with a thunder clash. But there, a lamp, the dark to cheat, and shadows followed little feet. And through the forest fast she ran, and with each step the dream began. Not once was felt the sting of fear, a bleach-white corsair did appear. Upon its back there was a man, along his forehead dark blood ran. His breath was short, his eyes half closed, the bones beneath his skin exposed. The charger pounded through the night, with mane of fire burning bright. She hid at once in case that he might vent his spur on such as she. But in that dark it was her flame, revealed conceit, not casting blame. He hauled the beast into a halt, with snorting breath and ne'er a fault. He looked upon her, hiding there, and called aloud, Play, have a care! From deathly skies a lightning bolt, the frightening steed recoiled and choked, and in the flash of light he saw the maiden frightened to the core. You are not to fear, he said, and reached her plaintive cries, his trust beseeched. His arm was strong, a smile he gave, her safety and the heart to save. Come here, he urged, and up she crept, from hiding hole and prison leapt. She gave her hand and with firm belief, releasing her from fear and grief. As through the fetid night they tore, the demons hunted her no more. There you are, then. Wasn't that a smashing poem? I, I do hope that that and my chicken story gives you some lovely dreams as you try to figure out just what was going on. Well, it's time now to switch off the old magic radio and let it cool down for a bit. There we go. Have you enjoyed your trip with me? Did you like all the adventures and music and stories? Would you like to take a trip with me again next time? You would? Oh, that's wonderful. Well, these jolly jigs draw a line into the proceedings and a circle around my forehead and a full bump at the end of the program. But there'll be more next time. You can rely on it. And I look forward to spending 60 minutes with you again. But all that remains now is for me to say to you all, Good night, children, wherever you are. Uncle Reggie's Magic Radio is a Corniche Pastiche production. It was written and produced by J. Bramwell Slater, who is a member of the AA. Acknowledgements and credits go to the generous community at freesound.org. You can get in touch with Uncle Reggie by visiting the website at 3W Koosh Records, that's Koosh with a K and two O's, kooshrecords.co.uk slash reg. He is also on Facebook as Reginald Merriweather, as well as on Twitter at The Real Reginald. This program is broadcast on the last Sunday of each month, and you can hear the next episode on the 27th of June. However, there will be repeats the following Sunday, and eventually a podcast to download on iTunes by searching for Uncle Reggie, or visiting www.uncleregie.podbean.com. In a moment, further adventures from the science fiction series Surge, but now it's very nearly 11 o'clock.